0: 16 years ago, I ended up leaving corporate America, I resigned my job to start my own business. And that was, I think, really hard for my dad to understand. Like, he was like, why would you? And at the time, I was working for Sony Electronics. I was head of brand and strategy, first female vice president of the company, you know, all these accolades, all these great things. And he's like, why would you leave that to go work on your own? And I just had to do what I felt was right for me and a good fit for me, and I think by now um, he's not only accepted it, but hopefully he's he's proud of my decision.
1: Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman. And on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, we are talking with brand expert Denise Lee Young. All right, all right. Now, if you like and enjoy the show, please take a minute or two to rate and review us over at iTunes. iTunes uses these as part of the algorithm that determines ratings on the Apple charts. And ratings help us to build an audience, which then helps us to continue to produce this show. And we like producing the show, so please give us a rating if you think we deserve it. On today's episode, we are talking to Denise Lee Yan. You may or may not recognize her name, but you would certainly recognize her face. Denise is the de facto branding expert when TV news shows need insights on the branding crisis of the day. Facebook or Starbucks in trouble? Denise is on TV as the branding expert. You've undoubtedly heard her insights. And as you'll hear, Denise initially cultivated her brand building approaches through several high-level positions in advertising and client-side marketing. She served as the lead strategist at advertising agencies for Burger King, Land Rover, and Unilever, and as the marketing leader and analyst for Jack-in-the-Box Restaurants and Spiegel Catalogs. Denise went on to head Sony Electronics' first-ever brand office, where she garnered major corporate awards as the vice president and general manager of brand and strategy. And today, she is a sought-after keynote speaker, consultant, and expert on branding and this is her story. So we're here today with Denise Lee Yan, and uh, Denise is the go-to expert on brand leadership. Uh, she she's often appears on all the major networks when there's a big brand question, such as like what's Facebook doing with their advertising, uh, or how they're responding to criticism about how they're doing business. Uh, she's a keynote speaker and consultant and uh, a very great writer. She's the author of the best-selling book, What Great Brands Do? The Seven Brand-Building Principles that Separate the The Best from the Rest, and Fusion, How Integrating Brand and Culture Powers the World's Greatest Companies. And Denise, you are uh, considered an expert on branding. So, when you were a young girl, no, uh, I
0: only play one. I only play one on TV, Mark. So you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> sometimes that's enough, right? <laughs> that, that's all. That's, so, when you were a young girl, when you were like, you know, eight, nine, ten, you know, did you think that you were gonna have a career in branding? Were you always drawn to branding?
0: Well, it's interesting because a couple of years ago, I moved homes and I was looking through some old files. And I found a paper that I'd written in high school about Nike. And I was kind of in elementary school when Nike was coming out really big, if that gives you any sense of, of my age and the time period. But even back then, I was fascinated by Nike, the brand. And so I don't know if I knew that I ended up doing what I'm doing today, but definitely that passion for brands has been with me for a long time.
1: Yeah, and back then what was it about Nike that was interesting to you?
0: Well, you know, I think it was the first brand that people or at least in my world that people felt like they wanted to show off and and to like, you know, wear their logos and kind of have t-shirts with the names on it and that people like had some sort of connection to the brand beyond just the product and um you know, from that from that time till now, I'm just really curious as to how brands um, seduce people almost, you know, to get them to to buy them, pay more for them, even love them.
1: Yeah. And and I think that, you know, you hit on a really interesting point that there's, there's been this evolution of brands and what it means. And, you know, for a while, it was kind of just to signify a, a difference in, in production or, or packaging. But it really, we are now moving into this era of brands as communities, as self-identification, mm-hmm. as you know something that we identify with beyond the product and service, and you know what's your thoughts on that and and, and how that has changed from when um, you first encountered that that Nike brand, which is, was starting to have that that feeling and where we're at today?
0: Right. Well, you know, it's so, your question is so timely because just yesterday I was giving a keynote to a client about iconic brands and I talked about Nike and, um, you know, I said that, you know, most, most brands these days know they need to have some sort of emotional appeal. So the fact that a brand creates some sort of emotional connection is really not news really anymore. What is different about brands like Nike and, and, you know, we talked about Trader Joe's and, um, even Impossible Foods, is that it, pro, it prompts people to, like, identify, as, as you said, with that brand, to see something in that brand that, um, you know, makes them feel that the brand not only gets them, but is also for them and inspires them to be, you know, to be a better person. You know, there's that that quote from that movie, As Good As It Gets, when Jack Nicholson's character says to Helen Hunt's character, you make me want to be a better man. I think, you know, the best brands do that for their customers. They make them want to, they strike a chord in the customer in such a way that makes the customer want to be something better, to do something better. And the brand is part of that journey to that better.
1: Yeah, and so that's where we are today but I still want to go back and so I know you live in San Francisco now did you grow up in the Bay Area as well
0: no I'm a Midwest girl I was born and raised in St. Louis Missouri and um, and then went to school went to college in Chicago so my very formative years were all in the Midwest and and I think you know Back then, maybe the emotional appeal of of a brand, and particularly a brand like Nike, was kind of more as a status symbol, or you know, kind of you're wearing the brand as a badge. Um, and um, I think what happened, you know, one of the things that happened between then and now is the um, you know the plethora um, of options and uh, you know similar products that are out there, so much so that you know it's it's pretty difficult for a brand today to differentiate based on a on a product alone or a product feature alone um, in, in any sustainable way. I mean you know they might be able to to come out with news, but it's easily copied or outdone by someone else and so I think that Part of the response to that reality that, that companies found themselves in was to, to understand or to, um, dis- yeah, to discover that they could actually create an emotional connection with the customer that was beyond the product, that was more about, um, that those feelings of identification, aspiration, and, um, and that kind of reconsideration that a brand might prompt for people. But as I think it's, you know, um, whether, a intended to do that or whether they just found that that was necessary, it has been an evolution. I don't think that brands played the kind of role that they play now that they did back then.
1: Yeah, not at all. And, you know, so you, you know, went, went to school in Chicago and, and where'd you go to school there?
0: Um, Northwestern.
1: Oh, very cool. Very cool. We're, I'm actually recording this from a temporary location just about five hours north of there on Lake Michigan in the Midwest and Northern Michigan uh, before mm-hmm. before we get back to Colorado. But uh, uh, so you're <laughs> in Northwestern and were you studying marketing and branding at that time? Did you have any inkling that this would be your path forward?
0: Well, actually, um, there was some time when I was choosing which school I was going to go to and, you know, what I was going to study that I actually thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Now you have to understand that this was the era when when, um, LA law was really big. So I'm definitely, I'm dating myself now, but um, you know, I like being an attorney and working in a law firm seemed really glamorous. And so I thought, oh, that might be for me. And, And so I went to Northwestern just to get a basic liberal arts background, thinking that if I decided to go and be an attorney, I would take, I would go into law school. And so that would be a good foundation. And it would also just open me up to other ideas. I guess at the time, I didn't really seriously consider, oh, you know, I want to go work for an advertising agency or marketing communications. And even if I did, Northwestern's um, College of Arts and Sciences doesn't have a major like that. They have a communications major in their journalism school, but not in the liberal arts school. So I just kind of said, you know, maybe I'll just do a little liberal arts study. And I ended up double majoring in psychology and political science but along that way I did an internship at a law firm and realized all that glamour from the TV show was completely false I spent I would I myself and I would see other junior lawyers spending hours and hours in this like stuffy library pouring over these Martin Hubbledale books that were just uh, just like Oh, it was just awful. I thought, okay, I'm not going to be an attorney. <laughs> so um, one of the things I did at Northwestern was I sold advertising for the Daily Northwestern, the student newspaper, and that got me really into the whole thing about, well, maybe I could make a you know advertising a career. And so my first job out of school was in market research.
1: And did you do that in Chicago, or did you move away from yeah, Northwestern at yes, the time? Yeah, yes.
0: So Spiegel catalogs again I feel like I'm really dating myself by talking about all these old brands and old circumstances but classic um, iconic catalogs, is what we prefer um, to say. Yeah. <laughs> it really was. I mean I have to say that in Spiegel's heyday, I mean and and when I worked there that was definitely a time of growth and and um and real like it was Spiegel was part of the culture really um it's, it's not only not only in fashion but also in home furnishings, et cetera. Um, they I was a market research and, um, and and market research analyst and there I really learned how to understand customers what are the research tools that you can use to understand how they're making purchase decisions, how they develop brand perceptions, how they end up favoring one brand over other. so it was a really great uh, continuing continuation of my education you know, that first
1: job. Yeah. And would your parents think of all this? I mean, you left to go to school to be a lawyer and, and we didn't really talk about it. And you, <laughs> you mentioned you had the foresight to be like, this is not for me, but were they crossed? Were they, were they bummed?
0: <laughs> well, you know, both of my parents, um, were, my mom passed away. My dad is still living, um, chemical engineers. And so they thought that I, you know, they wanted their kids to be engineers or do something very practical, sciencey. But my older sister ended up going to MIT and getting her degree in computer computer science and engineering. And so she took care of that. And I was like, like fine, she's going to go be the good daughter and I'll go be the rebellious daughter and do a liberal, liberal arts background. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, I it, they, they ended up being fine with it. But I do have to say that, you know, being an Asian American. And um, my parents definitely had different expectations for me than maybe some of my Anglo counterparts, where they did think that, you know, to have to be, you needed to have a serious career. But when you know, once I got hired by by Spiegel, I think they realized, okay, this this could be a, a serious career.
1: Yeah, and they were cool with that. Because I do remember, like, even when I was coming up, I never really when I came out of college, I didn't really understand marketing. And I think I kind of thought it was all logos and colors and, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. catalog layouts. And, you know, that was just, you know, obviously, incorrect uh, interpretation of the way I I thought of it. But I don't know if other people thought that as well. I mean, were they like, okay, this is legit? Or were they thinking, we're not so sure about this marketing thing?
0: Yeah, no, I think that, you know, all they wanted to know is I was going to bring home a steady paycheck and, you know, I was working for a reputable company and, uh, you know, that, which sets up a transition that I don't know if you want me to jump to, but eventually about, so this in 2004, so what, uh, two no, um, yeah, 2004. So 16 years ago, I ended up leaving corporate America. I resigned my job to start my own business. And that was, I think, really hard for my dad to understand. Like, he was like, why would you? And at the time, I was working for Sony Electronics. Um, I was head of brand and strategy, um, first female vice president of company, you know, all these accolades, all these great things. And he's like, why would you leave that to go work on your own? And, I just had to do what I felt was right for me and a good fit for me. And I think by now um, he's not only accepted it, but hopefully he's, he's proud of my decision.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I want to get there and I want to talk about that, but let's, so you're <laughs> yeah. you're here at Spiegel and you're, you're learning about uh, marketing. Yes. You're learning about, uh, you know, customer analytics. And at that point, are you like, this is, this is where I want to be or are you just kind of, like I was probably at that age, which was, eh, I'm working, I'm hanging out, I'm kind of figuring out the world. And uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen next.
0: I, you know, I'm trying to remember, I'm not sure. Um, I, I don't know if I could answer definitively. I do know that at that time, work became a real work and career, um, became a very important part of my life. And, um, you know i I remember from from those early years really getting driving a lot of joy and satisfaction out of working and excelling uh, fortunately, my boss at at Spiegel not only um you know uh, empowered me in so many ways in in mark and taught me so much in market research but she actually we we set up a phone center where we were actually doing outbound survey calls to people back when people would answer their phones and <laughs> and do research over the phone. And she basically said, go set up this call center. And so everything from identifying the the technology and the software that we're going to use to hiring the employees, to um, working with our existing contact centers to get space to use everything. I just kind of, she just said, go do. And I did. And so I really just enjoyed like devoting myself to to projects and to work that, um, ultimately was just really, uh, I think meaningful, um, not only for the company, but, but for me. Yeah. And
1: so what did the trajectory of that, of that career at Spiegel look like? Did you stay there long?
0: Um, no, I was there for, um, probably a couple of years. And, um, the story goes that I was dating, um, a guy I met in college. Um, he was actually a couple of years younger than me. And so I, and so, you know, Fortunately, I got a job in Chicago and he was still at Northwestern. And so um, we continued to date. And, um, yeah, like, so the story goes that he was applying to grad school. He asked me to marry him. I said yes. And then he said, oh, great, because we're going to move to San Diego. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, back then my whole life had been the Midwest. And I thought, California, California. Um, Oh, the people out there, they're just fruits and nuts. I'm not going to go there, but I had made the commitment to my husband. So we packed up and moved out to San Diego and I got uh, another uh, consumer research job at Jack in the Box restaurants.
1: Jack in the box restaurants. And so that's, that's awesome. And you you go out to San Diego and that must have been, first of all, quite a change. I mean, uh, I don't know how much you know about me, but I had a very similar kind of uh, path. I I went to school at University of Michigan and ended up in Los Angeles for a while and it was uh, awesome. but It was also a big shock, right? You know, it was, it was very different. So you're in San Diego and you're working at Jack in the box and, and and what's going on there for you from a, from a career and a brand standpoint?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So Started out in consumer research, then became a product manager where my role was to introduce new products, essentially new menu items. I introduced four different burgers and sandwiches in the time that I was a product manager. And then eventually I took over, went back into the research group and, and headed up um, uh, research analytics for the company. Um, but what was really formative about that time at Jack in the Box is um, some of your listeners may recall that there was a. Foodborne illness crisis that happened at Jack in the Box. A few, a few people ate our burgers and died and a lot got really sick. And, um, so overnight our business went from kind of booming and growing to like dying basically. And for about. Maybe a year, maybe over a year, we tried everything to resurrect our business, Um, perhaps giving away our food for free, investing tons in advertising, et cetera. And nothing nothing really would jumpstart the business. And then the head of Marcom at the time hired Shiat Day, the advertising agency, in Los Angeles who was responsible for behind for, for many commer- famous commercials the 1984 commercial from Apple um, uh, the taco Bell little um, Yokiro taco Bell dog all, all these really famous ads and they introduced the Jack CEO character which is still around today at the time when they introduced the this character um, you know they had you know done a bunch of research to understand how People felt about the business, and Jack represented like this leadership of the company. Even though he was just like you know, he has this big clown ball head, and um, you know, he's obviously a kind of a fictional character. At the time, he represented someone who was taking care of the business. He was watching out for the customer and making sure that they were going to be safe and taken care of at Jack the Box. And as soon as we launched that the campaign with Jack, our business pretty much turned around overnight. Um, the, the promotions that we had tried before the campaign, which had utterly failed, once we did them after the campaign, were very successful. And that got me so interested in how powerful advertising and, and, and campaigns and a character and like a, a character that was really based in strategy. Could the kind of impact it would have on a brand? So, um, when it came time for my husband to go to grad, uh, um, to post grad, um, to do his post grad work, he was kind of looking at some options and it looked like he was going to end up in New York. And I said, Great, I'm going to go work for an advertising agency on Madison Avenue. And that's basically what I did. It wasn't on Madison Avenue, but it was definitely a New York agency. Um, had a great experience there um, working. On the Burger King account, <laughs> so definitely have a lot of fast food in my background. But um, you know, just kind of, it was—it's an interesting journey from kind of observing how powerful advertising could be to then working at an agency and understanding how you develop insights, how do you um, work with creatives to come up with uh, you know campaigns and strategies that can really impact the business. It was a great experience.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You know, and I—I I, I so remember the. Jack is the CEO campaign, it was so just irreverent and smart and catchy. It was like almost <laughs> impossible not to love him and like him. I remember everyone was driving around with those little Jack heads on their and antenna.
0: <laughs> yeah, yes. all over.
1: Yeah. And I, by yeah. the way, I have a dirty secret. I loved Jack in the box tacos very late at night when I was living in well, Los I, Angeles. So if you had anything to do with those, you yeah. know,
0: my secret is that I still love them. So don't <laughs> tell, well now I felt full audience. No, I mean there's something in me that that Jack in the Box Taco It calls to
1: they're unique and very special. But so when you first saw that, that Jack is the CEO, did you really believe and think, hey, this is going to be awesome? Or were you skeptical uh, before it launched?
0: Frankly, I was very skeptical. And I was also um, I kind of maybe was an agency hater. You know, because, frankly, because, you know, like here I am, you know, heading up research and analytics and trying to develop all these great customer insights. And, you know, here are these like, like cool guys from Los Angeles, with, you know, the, the stereotypical ad guy with the ponytail and the cool clothes and the hip attitude. And, you know, they come in and, and they had definitely done rigorous research. I'm not saying that they didn't, but they, you know, they just came in and said, you know, forget everything you know, here's what you need to do. And, you know, at the time, the leadership of the company was so desperate, they were just like, okay, fine. We trust you. Let's do it. And I felt like, wait a minute, you know, um, doesn't it matter what I think and what I, you know, shouldn't we validate this? Shouldn't we do our own research? Shouldn't we, you know, test different options? Um, And so I was just kind of, I I don't even know if skeptical is the right word. I was just kind of like um, almost feeling a little Put off by the whole process, but I soon became a believer once we saw those results
1: yeah yeah, I mean not uh very hard to be an agency hater sometimes, but uh, they do they do <laughs> they do have their place and so you know I love your story your your obviously super smart and talented, you're just, you're working hard, you're making things happen, you go to to New York, you're working at the ad agency, you're working on the Burger King account, and I want to ask, I mean, you kind of brought this up a little bit, but uh, you're a woman of Asian American heritage, I mean, was it tough?
0: Looking back, I definitely can see times when I was not respected or taken seriously, whether because I was a woman or because I was an Asian American. And I would say that growing up in the Midwest, I definitely faced, experienced racism and discrimination. I remember, you know, getting made fun of and, um, but at the time, I think culturally, as well as, you know, how my parents raised me and, um, also just kind of the Chinese American, like ethos or whatever, I always felt like, I was like, I, there was something wrong with me. So instead of like, you know, the person who is, you know, calling me names because I'm Chinese and me thinking that they're bad, I was kind of like feeling very badly about myself. And I have to say that I've only really come to this realization in the last six months or even last three months since all the um, awareness about uh, racial inequity and racism in this country. And I have really now kind of thought about it. And I'm like, you know what? I really, I was discriminated against but I didn't think I didn't think to think I needed to put these people in their place I was kind of like there's something wrong with me that I have to be different so I really tried to assimilate as much as possible that's what my parents were very much into and so in some ways I kind of was just like I just need to blend in and kind of you know work as hard as I can Um, and if I do great work it'll get recognized And, and I think you know fortunately I was. I ended up in situations where that did happen, but I know that a lot of people um, aren't as fortunate, and they end up working really hard but not really getting anywhere. So, um, yes, yeah, so that's a long answer to your question. Yes, it was hard, um, but I think some of it was probably I put I put on myself.
1: Yeah, and 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 I'm just here a little bit in in, in shock, thinking about how difficult that must have been to think like well. You know i'm the problem you know and the way people are acting is the norm and if i speak up it's just going to create problems and either at the very base level, people won't like me. And in a, a more extreme people, I mean, it becomes unsafe, or at a more extreme level it becomes unsafe mm-hmm. or, or, you know, mm-hmm. my, at a variety of levels, whether that's directly like from a, a physical standpoint, or even just like, Hey, I might lose my job, you know? And, and uh, yeah. I, just thinking about that for you, I mean, it must've been extremely difficult, but you were able to push through and, you know what, what? What do you think? What do you attribute that to? I mean, now that you you say you've just recently had some awareness, I think it sounds like you've been meditating on this mm-hmm. idea a little bit. Like, how do you think mm-hmm. you were able to mm-hmm. to push through? Because certainly there were there were obstacles in the way.
0: Right. Um, I I owe it to my faith. So I'm a, a person of faith, and I came to that faith around the same time that I started my professional career. And I think that having Having a belief in God and knowing that God has a purpose for my life enables me, enabled me, and today continues to enable me to derive my identity from my relationship with God and not my work or my work product or what other people think about my work. Now that's not to say that, you know, I I don't care about you know, producing results or getting accolades. I, I'm human, and so this is it's important for people to respect and admire me or what Blah 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 blah. You know, but I think that fundamentally, I am secure in who I am. I'm secure in um, why I'm here. I'm secure in w- what good I need to be doing through my work. And so I think because of that, you know, some of the things that may have held me back or would would maybe be more hurtful to other people just haven't hasn't been as much of an issue for me.
1: Yeah, and, and so how did you come to to this this relationship with your faith and it becoming such a driver in your life?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I grew up going to church all the time, but you know, the church I went to was, frankly was, you know, just all the people there were either um you know, old ladies, really nice old ladies, but you know, old ladies, or families where the woman didn't work outside of the home, and so it was very kind of traditional, and and not, not there were no real role models for me as someone who was interested in work and interested in, devo- in developing a career. So when in my first year working at Spiegel, one of my coworkers invited me to his church. And it ended up being this awesome experience where I saw all these people who were very, at least to me, seemed very successful in their careers, but who were loving God and getting, you know, like I said, kind of their identity and their center in Him. And I thought, okay, maybe maybe this thing really is for me after all you know, it, it's, it's been a long journey. Um, so like I said, yeah, that was what, almost 25 plus years ago. Um, I think that, you know, what has, I, I continue to learn more and more about God's vision for me and, um, the impact that he wants to make through me. And, um, that continues to be kind of a, a driver and both a driver and a compass, you know, so it's kind of a motivator, but that's also allowing him to shape, my attitudes and my, um, decisions and ultimately the work that I do. All right. I don't and know. I f- did I answer a question that I'm thinking about? I'm not sure. I yeah, I question. think so. I think you're close. <laughs> I
1: mean, I got, I got another one. Okay. Um, uh, you know, I, I just, I do find it really fascinating and, uh, probably because faith wasn't a huge driver in my life. And I think, you know, and when it was, you know, I had a, a Jewish father and a mother who was, um, uh, Protestant. And so I was always like kind of confused, more or less, you know, and, and I didn't know which side, of, didn't know, know which side of the fence I fell on. But, you know, I, I think about for you, was this something that was an asset for your, your career? Or was it something you kind of kept a little on the, on the down low? Or was it something that really helped, you know, fuel your relationships within the business world and that, that, that was a part of, of, of your career as you, as you were uh, building that career?
0: Yeah, that is, that is such a good question, Mark, because I have to confess that for many years, I was in the closet about being a Christian. Um, it was, I didn't want anyone to know, um, did not, did not talk about it at all. And I think that's because, you know, number one, um, there are a lot of negative perceptions about Christians. Some of them well deserved, but just in general, there's a lot of negativity. And number two, I, I always kind of got the perception that other people thought that people of faith were maybe less intelligent, you know, just less thoughtful, um, less worthy of respect. And and I don't know whether that's true or not, but I kind of just got the sense of that. And and you know, I'm I really wanted to establish myself as you know this quote unquote expert. You know, so um, for a long time I just didn't talk about my faith at all. And it's really probably been only in the last few years that I have become much more open about it. And in fact, if you had asked me five years ago to do this interview, we would not be talking about this. I, I, I guarantee you, I would have just kind of deflected and just maintained this conversation about passion for brands without linking that to my identity and, and what I think the purpose of my life is. Um, so it's, it's a relatively new thing for me to share, but I've come to realize that, you know, people want to know me um, they don't want to know they don't want to be they don't want this like facade or image to be in the in the kind of a mediator for who I am and so I've tried to be much more transparent about my beliefs and um and my faith and so um that's just kind of been part of that revealing
1: um,
0: and it's been really rewarding I don't think anyone that I've ever you know, shared about, you know, this is kind of, this has been my journey has had a negative reaction, or if they have, they haven't had it in front of me. I think a lot of people enjoy talking about what their spiritual backgrounds were and how, how, um, they were raised and how that impacts how, you know, what they, what they believe in now. And I think that, you know, ultimately part of my identity is to really be a, a servant to serve other people. And so, In when I when I kind of am sharing that with people, I think people appreciate that and know that I'm not trying to push my faith on them. I'm not trying to evangelize or whatever, but I'm really trying to understand, you know, how can I help you? How can I serve you? Um, How can we do great things together that we both really love and and, um, produce something really cool? Um, So it's been it's been affirming.
1: Yeah. Well, and thank you for showing up as your, as your authentic self. I appreciate that. and it's, mm-hmm. it's nice to hear about it. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. Wild Story helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might wanna learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. So you are in New York City and you're working at the ad agency, but uh, where are you in your career now? I mean, are you, I don't know the right way to, to say this. Are you kind of just, I'll just say like a worker bee. Are you still just kind of in the trenches, like doing your thing? Are you starting to get notoriety as a branding expert, like, like what's going on for you in New York city?
0: Yeah. Well, um, you know, the first agency I worked for in um, New York was Amirati Puris Lintas and Lintas had been like this huge agency. So it was a huge agency and I was definitely just kind of like a, a small fish in a very big pond, just worker bee. Um, but then I had the opportunity to go um, be like the sole account planner. So an account planner is the person who's kind of responsible for the strategy of, of the account to head up and be the kind of driver of strategy at a smaller agency, Grace and Rothschild. And now this agency was small, but it was definitely had big impact. It worked on the Land Rover campaign, uh, Land Rover business for many years and came out with all of the kind of iconic Land Rover advertising as well, as other business. And um, it was kind of there where, where I ended up being kind of a bigger fish in a smaller pond. And I felt like I could really have more impact and influence on the creative work and influence on the client and their strategies. So, you know, there was kind of this more development of, hey, I have something of value to offer, um, I think, when I went to that agency. And then Sony Electronics came and recruited me out of that small agency to go head up their first ever brand office in the U.S. You know, at the time, Sony, it was kind of their heydays. It was like just they were you know, people bought the products, paid tons of money for them. Everyone thought that Sony's products were like the coolest and the latest technology. And, but they'd never had anyone to work on their brand, which is kind of strange. And we can get into that. Um, but anyway, so once I went to Sony, then I felt like that was an affirmation that yes, I, I do. Ha- I'm developing expertise. And at the same time, the experience of Sony taught me so much about Um, kind of the internal operationalization of your brand and the engagement of your stakeholders. And um, all of the stuff that I work on now really came to me as part of my Sony experience. So um, it was just a great both development opportunity as well as, I think, um, an establishment of me as a brand strategist.
1: Yeah, and that's like a huge leap. So, you know, you're working at this, you know, other agency, uh, uh, Grayson and Rothschild and cool agency doing some cool work. But to go head up a brand like Sony, I mean, were you scared?
0: Definitely. <laughs> um, but you know what? Like, I, I think it's a little bit of imposter syndrome and particularly for female imposter syndrome that, you know, like, I I remember thinking, do these people know who I am and what they're hiring? (laughs) But the mere fact that they had faith in me and that they, you know, saw something in me. Um, And then um, I had a, you know, a great immediate manager as well as the kind of chief marketing officer. Um, Both of them were just terrific um, role models and taught me so much. And I think that um, whatever fear or self-doubt I had, just was it was quickly addressed by how much confidence they had in me
1: and so what did that that tenure at sony look like or you know what did you accomplish and why did you ultimately leave
0: yeah yeah, so um, I was there for about five or six years, and the first three were amazing. I was working for this great CMO, and even the president of the company at the time really believed in in brand building and actually, I should say that you know when I first started at Sony was when they we, they first started to see some sort of softness in their business, and fortunately, the CMO and the president at the time had the foresight to say, "You know what, we need to reinvigorate our brand." But we're not going to do that by just creating a huge brand campaign. We're actually going to turn our focus internally and make sure that everyone inside the organization share, shared one common understanding of what Sony needed to become, how it needed to evolve, what were the values and the vision that it needed to embrace in order to move it forward. And so for the first three years, that's all I worked on, and um, we created this this program called Being Sony, where we engaged everyone throughout the company on what the Sony brand was and how each person in the organization could interpret and reinforce and nurture that understanding. Um, but there's always a but. And that is that within the you know, five ish years that I was at the company, um, there were, I had, I think it's like five different bosses and three different presidents or vice versa, three bosses. And there was tons of turnover. And this great CMO that, um, that I worked for left and what I was working on all of a sudden just didn't, wasn't important anymore. And so, um, after year, a few more years of me banging my head against the wall. In fact, I always say that I still bruises on my forehead from that. Um, you know, just trying to kind of move the organization forward in the direction I thought it needed to be. I, I was like, okay, I'm done. I'm going to leave Sony. Um, I should mention that. Midway through my time at Sony, I went from working in their New Jersey office. They relocated me back to San Diego, which at the t- at that time I loved. I you know I I had loved San. I fallen in love with San Diego. Wanted to get back there. So that was perfect. The problem with San Diego is though though is that there are not a lot of consumer brands based there, and so there are not a lot of great consumer marketing jobs. And in fact. I I don't say this to brag, but I think I probably had the best consumer marketing job in San Diego as heading up brand and strategy for Sony. And so here I am trying to look for another job and it's like, it's crazy, you know? So um, that's when, you know, thanks to some, you know, encouragement from others who said, you know, you would actually be a really good independent advisor. I decided I was going to resign my job and start my own consulting practice. And so that's what I did um, back in 2004.
1: Yeah, and and then we're back to where I believe your your father is thinking, What are you doing?
0: Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so he's he's scared for you, he's terrified. Like what but you had enough belief in yourself to to do that. Like what what was calling to you to to be independent? What what hadn't you done or or why did you need to do that? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, um, I I probably shouldn't say this because the people in corporate America wouldn't like this, but Sony sponsored me to go to a leadership development program in my last year with the company. And one of the things that the the um, founder of this development program, she had this saying that she said, um, some jobs are too small for some spirit. And it was just this idea that, you know, If you have like a passion and a drive to do something in your work, and your job is not allowing you to do it, you need to go get another job, or you need to go do something else. And I realized that probably, you know, the best way for me to do this was going to be on my own. I I will have to say that uh, for the first first couple years of me being out on my own, I always thought, oh, you know what? If this doesn't work out, I can just go back and get another corporate job. So it wasn't like I was completely committed to it. But I did think that I could have a lot more impact on a lot more companies if I were out on my own than working in one company and dealing with all of the, you know, setbacks and disappointments that I had at Sony.
1: Yeah. And so what was the plan? Like, who was your first customer?
0: Um. You know, I always tell people who are gonna who are thinking about going leaving corporate and owning their, and starting their own business that your customers, your clients, will not be the people you think they will be. And so, you know, I thought, oh, and all these people that I'd met through Sony, of course, they're going to have me, you know, come and consult for them. And and no one did. I um I want to say that actually an an advertising agency might have been my first client. And the only reason why they hired me to work with them is because they were pitching a piece of business to that CMO that I'd worked for at Sony. And so they wanted to know everything about him and his philosophy about brand building, et cetera. So they hired me just to tell him that. I think that might've been my first consulting gig. Um, But what ended up happening is I, um, I, I just would do a lot of business development and a lot of networking. I recontacted tons of people and one of um a client that ended up being a really great client for a couple of years was um VF Corporation. They own a lot of brands from the North Face to Eagle Creek. Uh and I had met a guy who worked for VF at a conference, you know, several years before I left Sony. And when I left Sony, I recontacted him and said, hey, you know, just want to let you know I'm out on my own. He ended up bringing me into that organization. And because VF had all these different brands, I was able to work on multiple projects for multiple brands. So that really just kind of established me. But I have to confess that um, this guy who got me into the company, if I had run into him on the street, I don't think I would have recognized him because I, like I said, I had met him at a conference several years ago. I just reached out to him just kind of in my networking and he ended up being such a great advocate for me. I ended up, we ended up reconnecting in person. So now I definitely know what he looks like and and, um, we have a friendship, but you know, that's what I mean by like, your business is going to, is not going to come from where you think it is. It's going to come from the most surprising places. And um, I think that's in part because When you are well-known in one way, it's really hard for people to then think of you in a different way. And so everyone who had known me as this kind of brand and strategy person at Sony couldn't see me working on like Nautica or Nautica jeans. You know, they just couldn't make that leap. And they couldn't see me actually developing a whole kind of business and brand plan Because they had seen me in this very narrow window, whereas people who didn't know me as that only saw that, yeah, I used to have a brand strategy for Sony. They were like, okay, we believe that you can do that. And so I think that's why different people ended up hiring me. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, totally. And, and, and it's really interesting. And I'm just thinking, you know, we're, I'm very familiar with VF, uh, you know, they've relocated their headquarters to Denver, uh, personally know a lot of Mm -hmm. people that work there, uh, very kind of outdoorsy, cool brand. And so, um, just thinking about how you got in there, what a, what a great story. I mean, not an easy company to land as, as your first client and you start building up your, uh, consultancy and, and then
0: what happens? Yeah. And then, um, Through the church that I was attending at the time, uh, we put on this program where we did all these different assessments. So we did the Myers-Briggs assessment. We did the Strengths Finder assessment. We also did like the Spiritual Gifts assessment, um, which is based on the biblical teaching that different people are gifted in different ways. Anyway, I did all these assessments and I realized that what I really wanted to do and really what I was built for was to be kind of, you know, again, I hate these terms, but kind of more like a thought leader and a a speaker, you know. So instead of, you know, just doing consulting projects, I really kind of realized that what was the best fit for me was to be um, a speaker and a writer, kind of getting my ideas and um, doing research and then getting my ideas out to as many people as possible. So I started Kind of thinking, okay, well, how do I become a speaker? And and granted, you know, as a consultant, I would go to conferences and speak for business development purposes, but, you know, I would be speaking for free, whereas I wanted to become a professional speaker, you know, Um, and I, I, in my research on that, I realized that I needed to have a book. Which is kind of crazy. It's just this weird thing. And I don't know if you found this to be the case, Mark, but um, you know, just somehow when you have a book, then people think that you have something worthwhile listening to. So <laughs> I I needed to write a book. And um I tried for several years to to write a book. Um, had put away at, at one point, um I, I talked with a publisher who said um, you've got a great marketing platform, you know, because I obviously I, I wrote this book proposal all about how I was going to promote the book. She said, you've got this great marketing platform, but you don't have the content of the book yet. So I put it away for a while. It's like, okay, great. I'm just going to be a consultant, whatever. And then I just could not let go of this drive to be a speaker. So, and, and I also ended up connecting with an editor, who I just thought would really help me write the book I needed to. And um, that's where What Great Brands Do came. And from so What Great Brands Do came out in 2014. And so since like probably 2013, I've really been building this business as a keynote speaker more and more such that I only take a few um, consulting clients, even just a couple consulting clients or engagements a year. And most of my time is spent speaking.
1: Yeah. And so that's that's a great segue. So so what do great brands do?
0: <laughs> well, I do have these seven principles that separate the best from the rest, Mark, in my book. Um, but the, <laughs> but the, but the number one thing and uh, the very first chapter of what great brands do is great brands start inside. Meaning that great brands aren't built by their external communications and their logos and you know all that stuff. They're built by um, cultivating a strong brand-led culture inside the organization. And if you are able to articulate a, an overarching purpose and core values that not only motivate customers but also motivate employees, then you can build this this brand that has so much impact and so much authenticity and so much integrity. Um, and so then just just to kind of close the loop on this idea of, of starting inside, that's how I ended up writing um, my most recent book, Fusion, How Integrating Brand and Culture Powers the World's Greatest Companies, because the more and more I worked on brand building, I realized that idea of starting inside is something that more and more businesses need to know about. And so I ended up writing a book solely on that idea.
1: Yeah. And I agree. Like in my experience, you know, a lot of companies view those two things as mutually exclusive when in fact they're oftentimes, especially like, you know, a company like VF where like culture is the brand, you know, for a lot of those different, the brands that they own, you know, it is important to start inside. And, and, and so what are some of the biggest sort of mistakes you're seeing from brands when they try to start, you know, building from the inside when it comes to purpose and values?
0: Hmm. hmm. I would say the, the lack of leadership responsibility for culture building is probably one of the biggest mm. uh, mistakes in the sense that, um, you know, you might hear like the CEO or, you know, the leader of the company kind of talk about we have we, we have a great culture. We need to, to, you know, work on our culture, but they're not accepting responsibility for really shaping what that culture is is or should be and moving the organization towards it. I think that they, there's often this sense either A, um, our culture is just kind of kind of grow organically. Just if I talk about it, it'll happen. You know, um, if I build it, it'll come. Um, or B, um, that's HR's job. So I'm going to tell the HR folks, you need to work on our culture and come back to me in six months or a year and tell me, you know, report to me what, progress he's made without really recognizing that, you know, there's so much in the way the organization is run and the way the organization is designed and um, all these different aspects of the employee experience, some of which do fall under HR responsibilities, but a lot of it falls outside of that. All of these things shape your culture. And so I think there's just kind of this um, kind of hands-off approach to culture, which holds a lot of companies back.
1: Yeah, I think I think the the biggest uh, red flag I, I heard when I asked once uh, who owns the culture here, uh, the answer was everybody owns the culture, and I thought, well, <laughs> no one owns the culture, and uh, you're, in right, right. <laughs> you're in trouble. You're yeah. in trouble. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, now it's
0: I will say that it's true that you know everyone ha- plays their part. In fact, I was just talking with someone earlier today about how everyone does contribute to the culture, but if the leadership isn't driving that forward, isn't setting the tone, setting the priorities and making sure that everyone in the organization understands what kind of culture we're going after, then yeah, you're right. No, you're not going to make progress, you know? So it's kind of one of these things that yes, everyone's in, in, yes, everyone is involved, but the leaders are responsible for, for championing, championing it and leading it and moving it forward.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so when, when it comes to brand, like what, what are you most excited about right now? What are you seeing and, and, and what are you excited about as, as we kind of enter a crazy world these days? Something that's a little different and something that's being reshaped and, and remade in a lot of ways, both with uh, the diversity and equity issues we're seeing as well as with COVID. I mean, there's a lot going on that, that, that's putting a lot of pressure on brands, but I also think is impacting mm-hmm. you know how, how we as consumers feel about brands.
0: Yeah. So I would say two things and and they're they're probably related to some extent but and they're both definitely a result of uh, the current um situation with the pandemic and and also the civil unrest. One is that I think there's a, a elevated expectations on brands from their customers and from the media and kind of other stakeholders that these brands need to be I wouldn't even call it like responsible corporate citizens. They need to be creating value for their communities and for their customers and for the world that you know po- that is a real positive impact. They're, they're, uh, and because people have the, the visibility to see kind of what these companies are doing now, is not enough for a company just to kind of do some social responsibility effort off to the side. I think there's an expectation that the way that you run your business needs to create shared value, the value that everyone who's involved in your business can share, that actually elevates your communities, elevates your employees, elevates your customers, elevates the world. So I think that that's one trend um, or or one development that I think if companies rise up and step up to the challenge, we will see uh, businesses dramatically changed for the better. Um, And then the other is that um, the employee experience it has been completely disrupted. In fact, I just released an article on Forbes about this that it's, it, you cannot deny that what your employees are experiencing or what your employees need and what they expect and, and kind of what they're experiencing now has not just changed dramatically over the last few months. And, um, that therefore you as a leader need to redesign your employee experience. You know, you, you can't, rely on people coming to your campus and kind of, you know, soaking in the culture through the ethos, you know, and the ethos is something that just kind of happens, which it never did in the past, but it definitely makes it clear that you can't can't be thinking about your culture in terms of space or place and time, but you need to be thinking about engaging every one of your employees in their, you know, individual needs and in their individual context. And so just the the fact that you can't ignore that, and that business leaders are going to have to address that, I am excited about because I think the way that companies engage their employees could again be completely different. And I think if companies really step into that opportunity, it, both the businesses as well as the people will be will be so much better.
1: Yeah, and that and that sounds like a. The world I want to be a part of, you know, it sounds like not only are we creating commerce and value in companies, but we're creating more value in the world.
0: Yes. And, and and, and you know, um, there's not this kind of in we're inside the organization, outside the organization kind of divide, you know, but like it's the, the company really views everyone who's involved in their business as, as a stakeholder and how can we create value and how can we have a positive impact on all of these groups?
1: Denise, tell me about flying a helicopter.
0: (laughs) Oh, so that was on my bucket list. And so last year, I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. So I took flight lessons for about nine months. And it is the hardest thing I've ever had to do, Mark. And I think I've done some hard things in my life. But just, and I think that I'm pretty coordinated. You know, growing up as a, as a ballet dancer, I kind of feel like I have fairly good coordination. But the thing about a helicopter is that all four of your appendages, right arm, left arm, and your feet, two of your feet or legs, are doing different things. You know, One is going back and forth, you know, side, and the other is going side to side, and your feet are steering. And it's not the kind of thing like a, pl- like a fixed-wing aircraft nor like a car where you could take your hands off the controls and you would still basically kind of go in the same direction unless something dramatic happened. You know, like every moment, every second that you are in that in the cockpit, you are making micro adjustments just to keep the helicopter afloat. And, um, I, I, like I said, it was it was the most difficult thing. Um, I remember after several lessons, I I um, asked my flight instructor, I'm like, you know, um, do you ever have people who you just don't think are ever gonna get this? <laughs> you know, like, and basically asking him, do you think I should just give up? You know, and and, and fortunately, he was nice enough to be like, no, you know, you really um, it, it just takes time. And He said there will be a moment when it'll click and you'll be able to do it. And um, so I ended up getting to that moment. I ended up um, doing my first solo flight, and um, it was just an extraordinary feeling, and I think um, something that I was really proud of that I was able to do.
1: Yeah, why was that important to you, to to learn to fly a helicopter?
0: Well, I mean, it was really stupid in a way, because I had gone to Hawaii, and we had gone on this awesome helicopter ride where um, they took us, um, I guess it's was on i can't remember what island it was we basically like flew straight up we flew straight into the like we were looking eye level at the top of the waterfall and then we basically went straight down and landed at the foot of the waterfall got out took pictures picture of her and then we you know left we went straight up and then we you know went around whatever and i thought that is the coolest thing in the world i i want to be able to do that I, I just, it was just kind of one of those things where I was just, it just was such a memorable experience and it is very much unlike flying. Cause you know, I, like you, I, like I travel so much that get on a plane, I don't even think about, you know, what's involved that we're taxiing down the runway and then taking off at, you know, these ginormous speeds in order to get afloat. You know, it, the helicopter experience is so different and I just felt like I, I want to do that. And little did I know how hard it was. Little did (laughs) I know how expensive it is. But yeah, like I said, I was just so happy that I was able to do it. Uh,
1: Denise, as we thank you for sharing that. As we end the uh, get to the end of the interview here, um, you know, if you ran into your eight-year-old self, that little Denise in St. Louis and uh, her ballet outfit, her tutu, what do you think she'd say if if she saw you today?
0: Oh wow. I would think that she would be kind of proud and like, um, excited about what I was able to accomplish. Um, at the same time, I think that she would, if she knew what I had gone through in the time in the interim, she would know about like, you know, the, you know, some of the waste in my life in terms of before I came to faith and, um, the, like the stupid things that I did where I was just kind of wasting my talent and potential. And she would maybe think, gosh, you could have been even more had you not, like, made those mistakes. But I think overall, I think that she would just, yeah, I think that she would be, like, excited about what has happened.
1: Denise, where can listeners find out more about you and, and get in contact with you if they, if they have some questions about anything you shared today?
0: Well, Mark, thank you so much for asking. The best place to go is my website, com, and it's really kind of a portal to everything. So um, there you can learn about me as a keynote speaker and watch my videos. Um, you can access my social media accounts. You can access my um, all of the articles I write for the Harvard Business Review and Forbes and other um, outlets, so you can access all those articles there as well as my blog and newsletter. So really com is, is the place to go to then you know, engage in whatever way. And I will say that I really enjoy connecting with new people, just like this connection that you and I have now, Mark, I'm I'm just so thankful that, um, you know, through these different people that we know and um, different uh, channels, we can actually meet new people and develop new relationships um, and just grow as people. So uh, please reach out to me. I would love to hear from you.
1: Fantastic. And I can vouch for Denise's newsletter. I uh, love her emails. They're full of gold nuggets. So go ahead and sign up. I, I think it's a great resource. And Denise, thank you so much for being on the show.
0: Mark, thank you. It's been great.
1: And that is Denise Lee Yan. I loved her comment that people identify with brands that get them that help them to identify themselves. Think about that one for a moment. And Denise, thank you for sharing your story in an authentic and vulnerable way. I so appreciate that you showed up as you are and didn't hold anything back. I'll say back to you what you said in our interview. You make me want to be better. And we'll make sure to link to all things Denise Lee-Yan in the show notes, so please check out all the free resources she makes available. Thank you again to Denise lee Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. A lot of big stories, and I cannot lie, you other storytellers can't deny.